So that piece of audio changed the way this country and beyond thought about this story. And it's a story that these three people have been showing and not telling ever since. And today we're going to talk about how these three journalists covered this story. Jeremy Rapp from The Atlantic, whose work on this story was on This American Life. Ayansi Diaz-Cortez from Reveal and Caitlin Dickerson from The New York Times. Welcome them, please. So, Caitlin, starting with you, you were reporting on this story long before that audio came out. Um, how did that audio change the way you covered the story, the way people paid attention to the story? Um, yeah, so I think by the time this audio published, I had been following and writing about family separation for almost a year. We'd done two pretty big stories. One was that the administration was considering family separation, and then another was that they'd actually started and by then that more than 700 kids had been taken from their parents. But as somebody who's covered immigration for years, you get used to this ceiling on your stories. You can write a big story, a lot of people will pay attention, but there are just certain people who just don't care about immigration or who at least don't care about reading or listening to stories from the perspectives of border crossers. And I think what this audio did was completely broke through that ceiling. So, the stories were, were getting attention and the congressional hearings were happening, but when these stories came out, it was like the entire country was paying attention and cable news started covering the story. And I saw an exponential increase in terms of just the engagement of, of the, with the work that we were doing. And even for me, again, you know, having followed this story for a year myself, I think when I finally sat down um, the evening that this, that this audio was published and listened to it myself, it was a, it was a personal breakthrough because at that point I, I was mostly talking to bureaucrats in Washington about this policy and why it was happening and how it was happening, and we'll get into that. But listening to this was really me meeting my characters almost for the first time and understanding a new facet of this story that I had, had already been paying attention to for a long time that I thought I already knew really well. And I think that directed my reporting moving forward and directed my writing moving forward because it, you know, it completed the picture for me. And the three of you approached this story in really different ways and made really different work about it. I'm wondering, Aniyanti, how did you discover this was a thing that was happening and how did that shape the work that you made? Um, I think I get the easy answer in that question because I... I'm around people who incessantly watch Univision, which is like a good way to tip you off on this stuff, and who this happens to anecdotally. And I have just a deep connection as from an immigrant family, so you kind of know that this was happening. I think the level that it started to happen and the flooding of, I don't know if you guys remember the John Moore photograph of this small child in red, um, 
just like prompted an editorial meeting at Reveal where basically um, a bunch of us were sent to the field, including my co-reporter and co-producer Nina Satija, who's not here, um, and sent to the border to figure out, you know, to meet real people, to figure out what was happening. And Jeremy, you usually make documentary films for The Atlantic. How were you assigned this story that's sort of a breaking news story? And how different was that for you to what you're used to? Yeah, I mean, it was um, a different thing because typically we're doing a bunch of research and before we're going to go out and shoot something. Um, but I, I've been in, I've done a number of stories in that area of South Texas before. I mean, my interest in the region and the issue of immigration is longstanding. I, I grew up in that town, McAllen, which became the sort of epicenter of family separations. And, you know, one of the first inklings of it were these, um, like, mass trials where the judge, in a, in a big group of people, the judge goes like this, how do you plead? Guilty, guilty, guilty. And um, so, like, for instance, those trials happened in a building that's walking distance from my high school, which is saying a lot because you don't walk in Texas, you know, you drive. So <laughs> it's close. Um, so that's, you know, when this started happening, I think our editors were like, you ought to go down there and do something. So what I set out to do was some coverage for our site while essentially casting, casting for uh, a subject that we could follow in a more in-depth way than a documentary. So I think that's a great transition to something I want to talk about, which is how you start reporting a story like this. And I think people might assume, and it sounds like in your case, it is just like, get out there, start filming stuff, start recording stuff. But there's another side of it that I think, Caitlin, you can speak to pretty well. I can, yeah. Um, I'm constantly being asked, you must have been at the border all summer. Have you even been in New York? You must have been in Texas this entire time. And actually, no. I mean, I, I was in Brooklyn, and I was on my couch, basically, the entire summer. So um, most people imagine that we were getting the stories of family separations from the parents and the kids. And that's just not the case. You can't walk into an immigration detention center and interview whoever you want. A lot of you guys already know that. So I found out about family separation starting you know, back, like I said, in 2017 from people who were working for the federal government who were willing to talk to me, but they weren't supposed to. They were talking to me on background. And so most of my reporting happened between the hours of you know, 8 or 9 p.m. and midnight or 1 in the morning after people have come home and had dinner and put their kids to bed or we would talk on the weekends, and that's how I found out that family separation was being discussed, that it was being implemented, and even all the way through reunifications, that's how I, I knew what was going on and how I was able to, to work with reporters like these guys who were on the ground to help them understand, because all along, the parents and, and the lawyers involved actually have very, very little information. I was lucky enough to have covered immigration for several years, and so there were people that I knew from the Obama administration. You know, every federal agency is run at the very top by people who are appointed by the current administration, and then when the new administration comes in, they're all replaced. Do you guys know that? So when Obama left office, these politicals lost their jobs, and then people who I'd known for years got promotions. And they knew a lot more information than they had before. And they obviously, um, you know, a lot of them came in under Obama. And they had different ideas about what should be happening. And so they were more willing than they had been in the past to talk to somebody like me on background. 
So that's how a lot of my reporting takes place. And as everybody knows, and no one is surprised to consider, it was, it was not, there wasn't an easy or obvious way to turn that into radio. And so that's where the brilliant producers of The Daily come in. Um, the series of stories that we did about family separation were produced by Lindsay Garrison and Rachel Quester. They're incredible, they're geniuses. And so they, I, I actually wasn't there for these discussions, but I, I imagine that they were sort of, that they thought like, okay, how are we gonna make Caitlin's emails interesting? And they, and they came up with an idea. So this is what they came up with. So I type up an email to DHS on April 17th. We're preparing to publish a story based on information that we've received from several DHS sources on background, which shows that more than 700 children have been separated from their parents by immigration authorities since last October. We wanted to run this by you to ensure that DHS doesn't care to add context findings. or further comment. Why have these separations occurred? Are these separations occurring more often? Has a decision about whether to adopt a policy of family separation for the purposes of deterrence been made? Why or why not? If my deadline is noon tomorrow, please be in touch as soon as possible. And then I hit send. So I, I just want to say something about that, which is that uh, we faced this issue a couple of times. We were like, make, make like, make radio that sounds like you're, you're like in the newsroom, and like, it's like, like I want to hear like, like typing keys. And we were always like, that, that's not interesting. I gotta say though, if you're gonna do it, that's the way to do it, because that was like really, really good. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, you don't have to like that. I think it was kind of divisive. Some people loved it, some people didn't. But it illustrates this challenge that we're all up against now, right? When we're reporting on these policy issues, and a lot of us are are talking to sources on background, and we and we didn't maybe used to do that, and we can't record those discussions. So this is one idea, and hopefully it helps you think of other ideas. That's the radio drama version of what it's like to be sitting at your desk all day writing emails. What was it like to like get in touch and actually talk to someone who was affected by this, a parent? So eventually, once the country becomes privy to this issue and immigration lawyers jump on it really aggressively, some of these parents start to get representation. And for an immigration reporter, again, as a lot of you guys know, lawyers are the key. That's how we find almost all of our characters. And it's unfortunate because most people who go through immigration court in this country aren't represented by lawyers. Um, and that's, it's unfortunate that we have to rely on them, but it's really the only thing that we have because like I said, we can't just walk into these detention facilities and interview whoever, whoever we want. The government won't let us do that. So, so once more attention starts to be paid to family separation, then I have opportunities to connect with people who have lawyers. And that's how I meet this father um, by the time I talk to him on the phone, he's already been deported back to Guatemala. So I'm connected with him over the phone, and he's got two lawyers. He has one who was representing him in his criminal proceedings because he was prosecuted for crossing the border illegally. And then he's got another woman in the U.S. who, she, you know, I've known her for a long time. She's an organizer. She does a lot of high-level work, and she's trying to get him, him reconnected with his daughter. So should we listen to some of him, and then I can talk more? Okay. Nazario. Hola, soy Caitlin Dickerson. Soy una periodista en, en los Estados Unidos del New York Times. Ajá. Quería hablar un poco con usted sobre su situación con su hija. Sí. 
can't tell you what pleasure it gives me to have you all hear my Spanish accent. Um, so that's my first conversation ever with Nazario. And like I said, he's back in Guatemala. He's married, he's got two children. He crossed the border with his daughter Filomena at the time she was five years old. And he also has a son who's two. So he, his plan is he and Filomena are gonna go to the United States, seek asylum, and then his wife and baby are gonna meet them later. Um, but of course, what he doesn't realize is that family separation is happening. He gets to the United States and immediately Filomena is taken from him and she's shipped off to New York and he stays in detention along the border. So to give you a sense of you know, what they, what sort of resources and knowledge they had going into this, he and his wife have a potato farm. They live in the highlands of Guatemala. It's in the western part of the state where a lot of indigenous families live and they're indigenous too. We've been hearing about this region a lot recently because we've seen huge increases of people coming from this particular part of Guatemala. So it's been in the news a lot. Um, he and his wife can't read or write. They don't have a television. They don't have obviously a lawyer in Guatemala or really anything other than their cell phones and he and I connect through WhatsApp and they have a radio at home and that's how they're getting their news. So he's one of the many parents who you guys have heard about who signed deportation papers. He says that border agents told him if he signed this piece of paper which was translated in, it was in English and it was also in Spanish, but his Spanish isn't great, it's not his first language. But he's told verbally by border agents that if he signs this piece of paper, then his daughter will be back in Guatemala with him within two weeks. By the time I talk to him on the phone, I think it's been a month, and he still hasn't heard anything, and he doesn't know what to do. He says basically the best he can do is call from his cell phone the consulate once a week in Guatemala to try to get more information, but, but he really knows nothing. Let's That's going to be pretty clear in this clip, yeah. It's really hard to talk to him on the phone. I mean, we've spent quite a bit of time, but he has a hard time answering questions or describing things. You know, I've asked him to tell me about Filomena, tell me about the town where he lives or his life. Really, all he does is ask me when he's going to get his daughter back. And he kind of repeats the question. He asks you as if you have the answer. As if I know. Even after I tell him that, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't have any more information, then he'll say, Okay, but more or less, how many days? Can you tell me how many days it might be? It's like he's stuck. It's like he can't comprehend what's happening. You know, he's asked me, what do they want from her? She was five years old when she was detained. She had a birthday, so she's six now. But he says she doesn't have anything for them. Mm -hmm. She's a kid. He feels like his daughter's been kidnapped. I mean, he just, he just doesn't get it. So I think what's happening there is that I'm trying to do a traditional interview with a character who has, you know, a central role in this story that I'm covering, Journalism 101, and I'm I'm asking him, tell me about yourself, tell me about your daughter, tell me about your town, tell me about your life. He can't answer any of those questions. He says the same thing over and over and over to me. Where is she? Why are they keeping her? Can you give me more information? And then, you know, at a certain point I realize, okay, that's the story. The story isn't all this detail that I'm used to using to, to write something traditional. The story is that this father can't, literally can't talk about anything else or think about anything else other than this one question. So that, I think, pretty well represents what it was like to report this from 
Brooklyn from the office at the New York Times. And Yancy, you were sort of on the opposite end. You were making radio about this at the border. Tell us what that's like. Sure. Um, especially with this story, I think when you're not as deeply sourced as the New York Times, it's really hard to know what's going on and to talk to real people. Um, and when you're producing a show like Reveal that is, um, that is very spinachy and dense, you need real people to kind of bring these like deep investigations and these heavy, wonky subjects to life. Um, so in this case, my co-producer Nina Satija went to the border um, uh, in Matamoros, Mexico, in, on the side of Matamoros, which connects to Brownsville. And at this point, they were just turning people away from the border, like systematically, like people were sleeping on bridges. Um, it wasn't just you claim asylum, you, you get let through. It was just they were just systematically just there. So people were sleeping through the rain, and she met, meets this guy, Marcos. And it turns out that Marcos's wife, Sandy, had crossed, I think, a week before with their four kids, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 6-month-old baby. Um, so at this point, he knew, he knew very little about what had happened. So, um, so Nina lends him her phone, and he calls his mother-in-law, Hilda, a lot of people. So Hilda then reports back that Sandy has been not only detained at the border, by claiming asylum legally, but separated from her four kids, which is technically illegal. Um, and so that's how we make the connection, like just traditional gumshoe reporting, go to the port of entry, meet somebody, make the connection. And we meet, we create this huge bond with this woman, Hilda, who we then go interview, who's the grandmother of these kids and the mother of Sandy. And we go interview her in Chino Hills in Los Angeles, me and Nina together. And as we're there, Sandy calls from Port Isabel Detention Center where she's alone and her kids are in another place. Her kids are in Phoenix and she's in Texas. And we capture this call and this is um, the produced version of it. How are you, my dear daughter? Sandy says she's desperate to leave. Did you talk to the kids, mommy? Sandy tells Hilda that whenever she talks to her kids on the phone, they tell her they want to be with her. She asks if Hilda's been able to talk with them. Yes, because on Friday they called. I spoke with one of the kids. He said, Mommy, I want to leave here. I want to go with you. Sandy says it's not just her being punished. It's the children, too. When Sandy says this, Hilda looks like she's about to cry. The truth, mija, I don't have words for you. I understand you as a mother. <laughs> Sandy tells Hilda there's no one there to hug the baby, no one to make him feel the warmth of his mother. Yes, that was something else the children complained about, that they don't let the kids hug the baby, not the 12-year-old, 8-year-old, or 5-year-old. How is that possible, that they don't let them hug each other? They are brothers. They have never been apart. What torments Sandy is that the baby's finally getting old enough to recognize people. But the only people he's seeing are strangers. You have to have faith, my daughter, because it's the saddest thing for a mother to be separated from her children. Um, yeah, so that was Sandy and Hilda. Um, what was really, you can't tell this tape, but what was really 
kind of jarring and depressing was that Sandy and Azamon, Sandy was nursing her six-month-old and her, basically her milk dried up after this and the baby was held in a shelter for about six months. But, so then we get to the day of reunification where it becomes clear that separating babies from mothers, I mean, she was, there weren't a lot of cases like that, to be fair, she was a very unique case, but um, th there was an injunction where basically all kids under five had to be reunited. And Caitlin and I were talking last night about just the freaking craziness of that day and how difficult it was to understand what was going on and how there was no way to report on this if you didn't have basically two teams, which was somebody working the phones and somebody else literally in the field. And what we came to figure out very quickly was that reporters on the ground knew more than like lawyers or parents or people at HHS or the government. Like we were really the ones that knew most what was happening, we knew nothing. Um, so because we didn't know what the story would be, we didn't know how the chaos would turn out, um, I did the very um, instinct of good radio, of real life is good radio, and you just record everything. Um, so some of that will make it in always because it makes good radio, so here's what made it into the story. Anyway, it's okay. Ugh. It's okay. I'm totally thrown. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Let's move on. So basically, um, yeah, I was at Southwest Key, which is the shelter where these kids were being held. Nina was like hustling and working the phones at the office. And because we didn't know if we would get our scene, we didn't know if they would be reunited, um, we were just frantically recording each other in our chaos, and it became kind of this therapeutic thing at some point. Um, and so a lot of that made it in because it was, you know, what you want. You want scene tape, you want to be in the moment. Um, a lot of it didn't work because it aired in September, and this was a very, you know, it's hard to make that stuff evergreen, especially um, for a new show. But, uh, but a lot of it was radio gold, in my opinion. And so this tape that we'll hear is basically what didn't make it in. And, um, and there was this one moment where we lost trust with the family. And this is kind of an outtake of how that moment played out. And a really good uh, example of taping everything. Because if I, we were talking about this last night. Like one thing you'd think you wouldn't need to tape is a conversation with your colleagues. But of course, you were. Nina, my phone is dying. Hilda just called me. My phone has 10%. Oh, Let's go. Wait, what, are you, what are you gonna say? Yeah, one second. What did she, say? she didn't go into specifics, but she said that someone from ICE told her knows about us and told her to definitely not speak to us. And oh, she, she asked me if instead of the Greyhound bus, that if I could take her. Oh, wow. So okay. I think they freaked Sandy out, so now Sandy's freaked out. She doesn't want to talk to anybody, and I, I got the uh, sense... Crap, you're breaking up on me. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. You're breaking up. Fuck. Nina? 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 It's not very good. The <sighs> service is not good. I can't hear you. In the meantime, I'll find out. I'll try to find out whether it's super weird for you to, to drive this car, to drive her, if that's what she's asking. Okay. Find out just, like, the ethics around that. Okay. See you I soon. I can't understand what you're saying. The service is bad. Okay. I don't know what happened. Okay. Bye. Yeah. My phone says iPhone needs to cool down. All right, I'm going to drive. Um, so that needed better setup. I'm so sorry. So basically, the clip before, we got this call that Sandy has been reunited with the kids from Hilda, the mom, who we've been in close communication throughout. And then 
at some point, she's like, they're at the Greyhound station because that's what um, ICE was doing. They were basically reuniting in a facility and then buying them Greyhound bus tickets. So you would see like the sea of the media at the Greyhound station. And so they get, a, basically, supposedly ICE was threatening them to not talk to us, so she asked me to drive them from Phoenix to Los Angeles. And, um, and so what you heard is kind of me telling Nina that I was asked to drive this car and her kind of checking the ethics around that. Um, and then, and oh, the thrilling conclusion then, of this ethical okay, quandary. And then this okay. was the response. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so Kevin said, Kevin said absolutely not. Um, so I think that's that, which really sucks. Oh, no. Um, but I was like, well, I just talked to Kevin and he said oh, he didn't shit. answer. Kevin said no. I just think this, this is what it, it's what it is. We just can't do it. Um, okay. so this, I mean, this could be, this could be the end on the auntie. I don't know. But tell me a little more about what Hilda said. This could be the end. Okay. So, yeah, I feel like I was definitely like, okay, yes, you know, we'll figure it out. Don't worry. So, so you you called her. Yeah. So, hello? Yeah, it was very hard to be in touch. So, basically, our executive producer, Kevin Sullivan, said, no, you cannot give them a ride. And, um, and yeah, so, so that was intense because at that point, I think we've all dealt with, like, trust test when we're reporting on subjects and kind of documenting real life, and this was definitely a trust test. And after, after that, we didn't lose complete access to the family, but we did lose the intimacy and the fantasy, um, kind of the radio fantasy of documenting, you know, a family 24 hours after reunification while the baby's sleeping, while she's trying to nurse him. Like, we, you know, they didn't pick up the phone after a while, and it just brought up all these issues of, Yes, on the one hand, as a human, emotionally, of course, like I could make their lives easier by just giving them a ride. Um, but I represent an organization, I represent Reveal, and there's an editorial rigor about inserting yourself in the story and what that can mean. Um, it was a really hard decision because, yeah, because the human part of you wants to take them, but also where's that line? Because you're also asking them for something, right? So. Yeah, you're giving them a ride, but you're also asking to hang around them for a week to basically expose their lives to you. So there's always a negotiation happening, and this was just like the crux moment where that negotiation was, you know, was lost. And um, yeah, it was kind of dramatic because it felt like the end of our story. So a lot of this other kind of me and Nina tape ended up making it into the story because it changed the story of reunification. So I think at this point, we've heard some examples of how hard it is to tell these stories while these families are separated. Jeremy, I think transitioning to your story, uh, we hear a little bit more from a family once it's reunified. Uh, tell us about Henry and the story you told about him for This American Life. So after they sent me down there, I, what I said about doing was basically trying to follow a few different people, like take a few different routes to find a family to follow over a broader swath of these they're you know they're kind of like way stations right like the the parents are detained over here the kids are over here so there are all these steps the for the parent has to get out they, they have to clear the kid to reunite with the parent then they're going to get back together then they're going to be together they're going to have the moment of reunification and then after that like what does that look like and that that really became our question is can we get in there and film 
this stuff unfolding as it's happening through the point of view of one family and have them really tell it in their own words. So that became sort of like the goal. So what I was doing was like, I, I was in touch with like an activist group over here and they were involved with some parents. Then I would go to that place that Anayansa just mentioned, the border town of Brownsville and Matamoros and I would hang out on the bridge and meet people and talk and see if maybe something there was gonna pan out. And then what I did that, that ultimately worked out much better um, and this sort of harkens back to what you were saying before, is that these lawyers are really the entry point for a lot of this. So one of the first things I did was get in touch with a lawyer who I've worked with in the past as like more of a source, but not a character in the story itself. Um, and her name, her name's Jody. But it, but it has struck me that she's kind of a great character. Uh, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to contact her. It, it's actually, it's another form of hedging of being like, can I get something? Because I knew that she's really vocal, she drives a four by four stick shift, she's profane, she's very entertaining um, and speaks to the issues. And most importantly, she's an expert. I mean, she's been in that area working in the, the detention center that's also in their story, Port Isabel, which was huge, which was a major way station for a lot of separated parents. And she knows personally, all the ICE agents in there because they go to the same churches, same baseball games, same, you know, same schools. So she's very sturdy. Because um, there were, you know, by contrast, there were a lot of lawyers who flew in and volunteered for a few days. And it's not to knock that, that work at all, but, you know, from the point of view of trying to follow a story to, to its completion, I knew that she was going to be there. Like, she wasn't going to be like, well, I have to fly back to New York or you know, so I started following her and I asked her, you know, she's going into this detention center every day and interviewing dozens of people and these are really rough and, and she, you know, it was affecting her a lot and I was, you know, just basic like anyone stick out in your mind kind of conversation and she told me about this woman, Anita, um, who I guess was like, she described it as being almost catatonic like she was so upset didn't know where her kid was hadn't talked to her kid that she was sort of like couldn't hold her head up is how Jody described it to me I have a lot of experience with Jody so when she's saying you should meet this woman and her kid and her little boy is tiny and you know he's really cute I was just sort of like okay this sounds good even as I was still filming with these other groups of people like just in case I started talking to a producer at This American Life while that was happening. And um, I think the day when I was like, okay, we really have something here, was um, I was filming Jody in her office, and she basically got this surprise. So the ICE agents had told her that that woman that she was most worried about, Anita, was, they were going to let her out on a bond, which is the first very important step to getting her kid back. So she called them and she's basically saying, hey, what's up? You know, you guys are going to let her out. Let's exchange documents and do sort of perfunctory paperwork, lawyer stuff. And they were like, oh, no, well, um, no, we're not going to do it. We're actually, we changed our mind. And she got really mad. But because she has this relationship with these agents, she's um, 
basically haranguing them, you know? And there's so, and, and at this moment, while in the larger story, there's so much interest in who are these agents anyway? Why are they doing this, you know, for, to talk about the ProPublica clip, right? So I'm filming her talk to them, they're on speakerphone, and she's like, you're gonna do this to a fucking five-year-old? You know, like screaming at these ICE agents. And I was sort of like, wow, um, this is really intense. And it, it worked, it changed their decision. So it took a few hours, but then they called her back and they were like, oh, you know what? Okay, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna let her out. And I mean, I think in immigration reporting, the biggest thing is having a lawyer makes the biggest difference for people. That's, it's like a truism. And that was the first time I, I witnessed that unfolding in real time. And I was like, wow, this is interesting and it's good tape, you know? <laughs> and so that, I think that was the day when we really started talking like, okay, we should do this. Um, Long story short, she gets the mom out and, and gets the government to agree to let them go pick up the kid. So I go with them to pick up the kid and um, I didn't go in the building in the HHS shelter with them, um, but they, they come out and get in the truck and I was there and I'm recording from, from then on. So I think we're gonna listen to the TAL version of that moment. I'm crammed in the back seat with Anita and Henry in the um, car seat. He's got a little car seat for little kids. And Anita just turns to him and starts asking him all about what happened after they were separated. So, and... Anita's asking him, like, where did they go? Where did they take? Where did they take Henry after they were separated? And Henry's telling her that they took him to La Yelera, which is like this really cold holding place. It's really common to hear migrants describe this place as the Yelera, the ice box. You know, you sleep on a little mattress on the ground with a space blanket. So Anita's asking him if there were lots of kids with him. Um, and and he says that he that he was cold, and so he turns and he says to someone, "Teacher, I'm cold. Can I have a blanket?" And that person, who I'm guessing is probably like a nice officer or something, or a border patrol agent, someone yeah. there tells him, um, "No, not yet." And then when they finally give him a blanket, Henry's saying that he sh- he shared it with another kid. And his mom is like, you shared it with another another child? And he says, yep. And she says, that's really good, sweetie. Yeah, I mean, this is her first time seeing him, and I think she's just looking at him, trying to imagine what he's been through while she has, you know, not been able to be there with him. So if you're listening to that tape and you think Henry sounds like the cutest kid in the universe, it turns out he actually is, and we can see that because Jeremy was also filming everything you just heard. 
Pues ya listando la, la maleta para salir a North Carolina. Yo caí a una tienda. ¿Verdad, mi amor? ¿Para dónde vamos mañana? En avión. Mi corazón, o sea, me siento muy, muy mal por eso que le pasó a él. Me siento culpable de que él sufrió mucho ahí. Después de que lo llevaron de la hielera cuando nos separaron. Digo yo, o sea, Dios mío, ¿qué hice? No, 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 honey. Don't do that, please, okay? No touch. ¿Dónde aprendiste a decir eso? No touch. Y yo también. ¿Y qué es no touch? No tachi significa no tocar así. No tachi. separación fue muy larga, mi hijo ya ha cambiado mucho, con tanto trauma, ya no quiero ser tu hijo, ya no soy tu hijo, me dijo. So, like the ProPublica audio, like this video, the point of this is to get these stories in front of as many eyes as possible. I wonder, since you made this story for This American Life and you made this video for The Atlantic, if you can talk about how each of them um, got, um, what, what kind of reactions each of them got. Yeah, I mean, and I thought this, you can kind of see how we used the, to the moment of him describing his experience in this icebox place with the cages, which was, that's actually the location where, it's actually the same building where that ProPublica audio came from. That's, he, that's what he's talking about there. Um, so you can see kind of how he handled it differently. I guess, you know, something that really struck me spending, you know, our, our question was, what is it really like to come back together? Is it this happy, joyous moment that we had begun to see at this point in these kind of viral video clips that I'm sure a lot of you saw? Or, or is there more to it? And spending this time with them, I, I think what struck me was that their kind of happy, typical 
parent-child relationship could coexist with this exceptional trauma. So we wanted to kind of do justice to that, I think, or present that in, in, in both the radio story and, and the video. Um, so that's kind of why we included, you know, I wanted to show them sort of reacclimating them, him being cute, him being a regular kid, her being a mom, being like, what are we doing? You know, having that chatting so that you can see the distance between that and then this trauma that's clearly, you know, exploding to the surface, even on this, the, fir the first night that they're back together. Um, so we try to convey that, I think, in, in both stories, and we, and we just handled it a little bit differently depending on the medium. And I want to mention the, the other voice you heard in the TAL story, that's Nadia Raymond, a producer there. She's amazing. There's a moment in the video where we hear your voice when you ask Henry about no touching. Why did you ask him that in that moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that this goes to the point that Caitlin was making earlier about this story progressing on two tracks. There's this Washington bureaucratic track happening behind closed doors at the DHS headquarters and elsewhere. Um, and then there's this, which is utter confusion, chaos, emotional upset. Um, and that moment actually is, in a way, it's like a confluence of, of both tracks because um, as that was happening, so he was, he was basically hyper, right? He's like banging on the walls, doing what, what he's doing, what you guys just saw. Um, and I was like, I was, honestly, I was just trying to film her, like tuck him in. I thought that would be a nice little moment. But when he started saying no touch, so what happened was that he reached, he like reached for something and that uh, Catholic sister there at kind of like a shelter, she tells him, don't touch that. And when he started saying no touch and sort of perseverating on this phrase, that for me was actually a bit of forewarning that the mood was about to change. Um, but weirdly, I, was, I think I was the only person in the room who realized this because of course Anita doesn't speak English, doesn't even know what the phrase means. The sister who was in there, I don't think she was following the story as closely as I was. And I had read from reporting like Caitlin's about this policy that they have in the shelters, which is that even siblings can't touch each other. This despite the fact that, you know, in a time of trauma for a child to touch is a way of soothing, like self-soothing. Um, so it's, it's, it's an exceptionally harsh rule. And um, I had read about it in the Times and elsewhere. Um, so when he started saying no touch, no touching, no touch, I was in my, in my mind, and I'm just standing there with the camera, camera pressed on my face and thinking, oh my God, he's talking about detention. You know, he's, he's describing his experience in detention, even though he seems kind of hyper. And I thought, wow, this is eerie. He's talking about the no touch policy. So even though I was just in it for the tuck-in shot, I, I kept rolling because I thought, well, this is really intense. And, and then, you know, when he did get really upset, I mean, in that moment, I think my ordinary human instinct was to look away and give, give them privacy. But of course, the reason I was in the room to begin with was to document this very question of what is it really like to, you know, to come together after this trauma of separation. Um, and I had discussed that at length with Anita, and she was really on board earlier in the day. So I just felt, well, the responsibility in this moment is to keep rolling. And, and that's what you saw in the clip. Caitlin, as someone who's writing about 
the policy, what is it like for you to see the kid and see him saying it? I think like I said at the beginning of the discussion, it just shows me the, the huge gaping hole in my reporting that I, I wasn't personally able to fill. I mean, when we did end up bringing all the parts of, I guess all of the sort of parts of the times that we're working on this story back together for our episode of The Daily, um, we were able to benefit hugely from audio that my colleague Annie Corial gathered throughout her reporting. And she was more in the role of, of Jeremy and Anna Yancey as I was covering what was happening in Washington. She was with families, um, with parents and kids. And, and just like watching Jeremy's video, hearing Annie's audio for the first time from me, I, I was just so grateful that we had it because you really, you, could, you can't tell the story of family separation if you only have one track. Um, and, and me describing, you know, talking to child psychologists and child welfare experts and them telling me what sort of implications, you know, you can expect to see for children based on family separation, it doesn't matter how I phrase it. It's I, don't, I don't need to tell you guys this. It's never going to be as powerful, but it's also never going to be as clear as it is in this video. But then, and then of course, there's the other side of that to talk about the other way of looking at clarity in the story is that like, you know, if you, if, if that video is the only thing you consume from family separation, you're not going to know about the no touching policy. I wouldn't have known about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a degree of this with every big news story, with covering any big news story, but um, it was really fascinating and really kind of bold faced to be reading coverage, like your stories, and then something like this happens, and then you, you see it, and you're like, oh my god, it's real. From the mouth of the bureaucrat to the upset of a six-year-old. Um, th that was fascinating. Caitlin, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how your stories are received when they're in print or on the daily, since it's sort of a, a mirror situation. How they're received? Uh, or, or, you know, the, the difference between sharing the audio in an episode of The Daily versus explaining what a psychologist says will happen to a kid, your experience just working in both of those mediums. Sure. I mean, maybe to the chagrin of the majority of the paper, the majority of my bosses, I mean, there's just a, a, an undeniable difference um, in the reaction that I get based on a story that appears in the newspaper and then a story that appears on The Daily. Not only do I typically hear from a lot more people after I do a story with The Daily, uh, but it's a different audience. It's, it's tend it tends to be younger people. Um, it tends to be less sort of hard and fast people who have really specific advocates, essentially, for one side or the other. I get maybe a lot harsher sort of reactions from, from the extremes when it comes to a story in, in print, and I'm generalizing versus on the daily, because the, you know, the daily has just such a, such a diverse audience in terms of their interests um, that for a lot of people, this is, this is their entry point to immigration. It's not something that they follow every day. So I think the reaction is a lot is more robust, um, and it's also a little more intimate. It's more like I used to work for NPR. I was there for several years before I got to the Times, and there I got emails all the time. They're just kind of more personal, um, and I would say that's more of the kind of reaction that I get when I do something with the daily. It's this is how this connects to my life. This is why the story resonates with me. This is why I want to do something and change my life and get involved after hearing you on the daily versus a, a reaction that I might get in print is, is going to be more like, 
this is why you've misidentified these illegal border crossers and you know they're not children they're mm -hmm. lawbreakers you suck I, I i received a really intimate reaction i mean i think this speaks to the point but like when you know when people hear that little voice or they watch video and you can see the people's facial expressions i mean i i received in the mail a giant stack of letters written on paper like this, like this, a huge stack of letters from eighth graders in California that were like letters of support. And they were like, can you send this to Anita and Henry? We want to tell them, you know, I'm just saying it's that that's like the kind of reaction I think that you get from this kind of story when it does center on the person. Watching the video, a thing that occurs to me, an advantage that you had that that maybe Anayanti didn't have or, or Caitlin didn't have when doing these stories for, for radio is that you had subtitles in those moving pictures. Uh, how did each of you deal with translation in, in the audio stuff? And how, how much did it benefit you to not have to deal with that in video versus, say, the This American Life story? Yes, I can talk about translation for many hours. But it's, it's a huge challenge, because there's no subtitles in radio. And what we tend to do traditionally in public radio is just like replace, in this case, the English with the Spanish. And it's really challenging to find creative ways to convey emotion when you're basically writing script um, for voiceover. Um, and then also think, you know, there's stylistic and editorial decisions or where you fade up and where you fade down. And what you translate and what you don't, it was what was really kind of interesting about how the dailies dealt with that with the Annie Correal stuff. I don't know how much you guys listen to it, is that there's like entire like 20 second bites where you guys just don't translate anything or paraphrase anything. And maybe because I understand both languages, for me it's kind of poetic and beautiful. And in our editorial kind of meetings, it was just like there's too much Spanish. Like you guys need to tone it down with the Spanish. So so yeah, it's a, it's a dance. And then finding the right voice is a little bit like casting. I think one of the takeaways from the mass coverage and attention that was paid to this story is that people actually have a lot more patience for Spanish language tape than you're used to. I too have always been told like 10 seconds, no more, too much, can't understand, doesn't mean anything. And I'm like, but the person's crying. Like you can tell that something's happening. But but editors historically had been really sort of firm about, about just foreign language tape, just making people sort of tune out. And I think yeah, the ProPublica audio is the starkest example, but there are many others, and you've heard them today. People have a lot more patience for, for tape in other languages than we think they do. I'm so glad that the Daily is brave enough to challenge that, and I think, but we, we've all, you know, everybody has proven that in their work now, so I think we should keep going with that and remember it moving forward, not just for this story, but for other stories. I wonder, before we turn this over to, to audience questions, which we will do approximately, have you all dealt with fatigue on this story? It's a story that's been with us since the spring. There was certainly a ton of reporting about it, and now there is certainly less. But a lot of these kids still haven't been reunited with their parents. I think for me, it's been about finding different ways to cover this story and also using it as an opportunity to pay to, to draw attention to stories that I, if I had written them a year and a half ago, nobody would have read read them. I mean, right now I'm, I'm writing about unaccompanied minors and this, this tent city in Texas where some separated kids were sent, but the most, of kid, most of the kids who've gone there crossed the border alone. I could have written that story a year and a half ago and it would, it would never have superseded that, that ceiling that we talked about in the beginning, but now that family separation has opened the door, it's like, 
I get to now shove all this other stuff in, um, which is really great. I have been told, we talked you know, last night about editors who have said to us, you know, like, not another first-person story about a parent and a kid. I've read seven of them. I, I can't edit another one. And so the reporters and I are looking at each other but, and saying, but, like, but, but the readers might want that. And there still are hundreds of kids who are separated. Um, but I think you know, those decisions, they, they sound really harsh. But I think they're also borne out by data. I mean, we see how many people listen to and read our stories. And we see the numbers going down. And that means we have to come up with a new way to do this because obviously the story is still as important as it was before, you know, especially as kids start to spend not just six months but you know, a year in custody away from their kids. Um, but, but we have to be more creative in terms of how we try to tell their stories because you know, we can't just fight the good fight because we believe in it. If nobody's reading it it's, or listening to it, it's not worth it. I mean, I feel a lot of gratitude in a way because, um, you know, because now the you know, this story made it to the mainstream, and I think these separations have been happening, and a lot has been happening in immigration for, obviously, for decades, and the fact that it became this mainstream just, like, speaks a lot to the, you know, was really a media story, but, um, but in terms of um, just, like, fatigue, I want to give a shout-out to Stan Alcorn, who's somewhere over there, who's basically our, you know, de facto editor, because a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff happening in Phoenix would have worked really well the week of reunification or the week after where you can feel that play-by-play -play and be in a scene and get that satisfaction. If you're using that kind of stuff, you know, three months in, three months after on some random weekend where there's like not a sufficient news peg that feels new, it's a totally different sell. So a lot of what we workshop together was like, yeah, we get the emotion around it. You and I were talking about this, but we don't really understand kind of the stands for the soup to nuts comprehensive part of what was going on that day and what asylum is and how do you make that for the radio in a way that's entertaining and at wonky and like we totally freaked out when your two-parter came out because it was like did they take away you know it's you know it's like no one had been covering kind of behind the scenes let's understand what this means beyond the emotion of indignant outrage um so yeah, so, so that was how we kind of dealt with that, just like going a little bit deeper and trying to make my line try, for reveal, trying to make spinach into cupcakes. <laughs> I mean, the, the only thing I can add to that is just like, I, I think in, in editing this story, we had a ton of material. The other leads that I was following, we dropped those. Um, and I, I think you know what we saw in the footage and then what we also thought would be relevant for some time to come realizing that this would take a while to edit was this question of you know what is the lasting effect of this trauma you know it's more than 2600 kids uh, who went through this so I, I think you know we tried to focus this, the story around that um, and that was you know kn knowing that there is like fatigue around the story and just trying to think through what it, you know, to me that's a big question going forward. Are, how is this gonna impact the rest of their lives? Okay, I think uh, we're gonna open up to questions. Before we do, could we get a round of applause for, for Jeremy and Nancy and Caitlin? Thank you. Hey there, how's it going? My name's Katie. Hi. Um, I want to know, uh, was there ever a point where you felt like you were being 
Two, objective. Um, and I ask this because I always feel like I am in my stories and so emotionally connected and want to give the person a ride. And uh, I guess kind of along that example, whew, did you ever feel like at a point where you're too objective and how did you handle it? I don't think so. I think this is a story that doesn't require any frills. You can tell this story straight and you, everyone is gonna pay attention and gonna listen really closely. And I think you actually turn people off and lose, lose readers or lose listeners if you try to overdo it. Um, you know, just that kid, that's all you need. Um, so I, I didn't ever find that. I think I found the opposite. I found, you know, a lot of journalism that felt like it went, it went too far and took away from, uh, from the story. Hi, I'm Willow. Uh, I have a question about Reveal's decision not to let you give a ride. So it sounded like you were surprised by that decision. So I'm curious, both why were you surprised and also what was the rationale in saying no to it? Was it because they didn't want you to be part of the story or was it more of an image thing of like, then you're helping this family? Right, I guess the, your first question is like why I think it's totally different to be in the, in the office than to be in the field where when you're like, you know, on these phone calls with this grandmother dealing directly and in some ways you're like, you're emotionally at the forefront of this and you're seeing um, people get released from detention after months of not seeing their kids and you have a, a rental that you could easily put into car seats. It's like an easy choice, like an easy human choice. So, um, and as far as kind of our decision to not do it in hindsight, I think, was the best decision, but in the moment, it just felt like, I have this car, I can do this thing, I can make this situation easy, I'll get this wonderful tape, like everybody wins, like what's, what's, what's the issue? But I think the, the, the issue here um, is that I would have been kind of enabling the story, it'd be different if I was riding the Greyhound bus with them, or if it was like a war zone situation, they had bus passes, they were gonna get safely to, Los Angeles, they were gonna be fine. Yes, I can make their life a little bit easier and I probably would have gotten a better story out of it, um, but at the cost of compromising myself and reveal. Um, so yeah, it was a tough decision as a human and also as a journalist, because for weeks I came back and I was like, I did not do my job. I did not get the scene of reunification. How is the story gonna work for the radio without that? Um, and yeah, so that was, you know, again, workshopping stuff with colleagues and people like Stan to just like figure out a framing that works when you don't have those key elements. We did get an interview with her, but there was no this like fleshing out of three-dimensional characters days after reunification because that, that was lost. And I think, just one more thing on that, I think from Ila's perspective, which is the grandma, it's like they're in fight or flight. Like they're just like solving their situation and and there is this idea of like, we go in and we want something from them, but what are we giving? And like this vague idea of telling a story in English for a public radio, it's like, it's over their head. Like she just wants Sandy to get to LA with the kids and that's her perspective. So it's totally like reasonable that she was like, peace, you know? And she was told, you know, we did get an interview, but it wasn't that kind of intimate access that we had had um, for all those weeks. Hello. Um, it seems like in a lot of cases, and kind of to build on the objectivity question, like when we're telling these stories and when we're getting involved in these people's lives, there is a level of trust there. And I guess to speak on their behalf, 
when we're telling these stories, it seems like a lot of times something horrible will happen, like family separation, and we expect an action to happen after that. And I guess as reporters, or as people telling these stories, when do we stop being reporters and become activists? Like if you see something that's terrible, it's one thing to sound the alarm and saying that this terrible thing is happening, but especially in today, it seems like we have this information and nobody's doing anything with it. It's just like, well, now we know, and, and then not much happens after that. And this isn't an indictment on y'all, but just in general, how do we get past just telling the story and saying, all right, and this is what we need to do, this is how to fix it. I see that as my role. I'm a boring, traditional, old school person. So like, we have people here today, which is fantastic, from so many different types of journalistic outlets. And, and everybody's approaching the news from different ways. And the way that I approach it is, is the way that I learned it, which is that you are doing something by telling people what's happening, and that's it. And, and you're taking away from your ability to, to be able to fill that essential role in a democracy, like just a free and fair and objective press, if you then take it a step further. You don't, you, don't, you don't need to do that because just telling people what's happening is doing something. So that's why I do my job, and that's why I don't have any problem stopping there. I mean, and just to add to that, to be fair without these stories, like, I don't think it, it would have impacted policy the way it did. I don't think family separation would have stopped. I think it would have just continued to just fly under the radar like it did, quite frankly, under Obama for a, for a long time. So, so on the one hand, yeah, from Ida's perspective, it's like I did not impact her life in any way and I could have in a very direct way helped her situation. Um, and this idea of telling her story is so vague, like who cares? But on the other hand, it's like it, in this case, it really did impact policy, um, the storytelling element. I can, I can just add a small bit to that. I mean, you know, I, I touched on this a little bit, but like when it got really intense in there, your, I mean, my, my natural regular human impulse was to give, give them privacy, but then also, yeah, you want to do something to help them. There's a vague sense of that, but I, I think like the way I personally handle that is to double down on the role. I mean, I think you articulated it the, really clearly. And like, keep going. I mean, like, in that particular moment, like, I left the room, took a moment. I mean, I was nauseated. It was upsetting to watch. Um, but then, like, an hour later, when she was outside, I thought, well, let me get how she feel. you know, talk to her about it. And um, I think that drives it home. I mean, I think her talking about it in that moment as it's happening um, reveals kind of the emotional impact of what, that, what it really means. And, and yeah, that's valuable unto itself. I don't think I need to go further than that. Um, one more round of applause for Caitlin, Jeremy, and I answer. Thank you.